0: We come to our sermon passage this morning, and we are continuing on in our sermon series in the book of Exodus, and we have gotten to the last of the ten plagues. Um, So this morning we'll be in Exodus 11. Um, That should be 1 through 18, and then uh, some excerpts from chapter 12 as well. This sermon's called uh, Judgment and Mercy. Um, So you can turn there in your Bibles or on your phones, or it's printed for you in your bulletin as always. Exodus 11-12-13. This is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here, and when he does, he will drive you up completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed for the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. And there will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or will ever be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you, and that I will leave. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with the nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year old males without defect, and you may take them from among the sheep or the goats, Take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and on the top of the <coughs> excuse me, tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw, boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it until morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you to eat it. With the cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike each Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that as we're reading instructions for a meal to be eaten, and uh, some of those instructions seem very strange, that in this passage you would show us Jesus. Where this is, he's pointing to him. Give us clarity of understanding here. Open the eyes of our hearts to see His glory and His majesty, even here, that we might love Him all the more. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, just on the front end, I'm not going to get into every little detail of the Passover feast. Um, We're actually going to be talking about the Passover feast a little bit more next week, um, too. So, uh, if you get to the end of the sermon, you're like, I didn't talk about boiled, but we'll get there next week. so uh, <laughs> in the 1980s, this actually predates me. So I just know about this from experience. But in the, in the 80s, there was a medical drama, and some of you may remember this show, Saint Elsewhere. It was a medical drama set at a hospital in Boston. And this was like ER or a, uh, what's I'm so old, the Grey's Anatomy now. Yeah, that how long has that been on? 12 years. Um, anyway, it was like that, but before the time. And, and uh, the show Saint Elsewhere, it was it was on for six seasons, it was a big deal. Well, it got to the end of the show, and like a lot of shows, the writers didn't know how to finish the story. So in the very last episode of St. Elsewhere, they reveal that the entire six seasons, the whole drama, has taken place in the mind of this little boy. Like it gets to the end, and there's this little, literally a snow globe, and the kid shakes it up, and there's like an earthquake happening in the hospital, and it reveals like it all took place in his mind. Um, and it seemed like a bad joke. Like, the fans were kind of upset. Like, man, we've been waiting for all of this, but now it's just, it's all a dream, or it's all in his imagination. And you would think, okay, the show did it. That's over. That was 1988. Well, a few years ago, comedians started thinking about this. That all of those writers that had worked on St. Elsewhere* went on to keep writing television shows. And they started other shows. And there were crossovers with characters from St. Elsewhere that come into other shows, and it was referenced. And he did the math, and he figured out that there were 419 individual shows that had connections to St. Elsewhere through crossover. And it was shows like X-Files, Law & Order, Star Trek, The Office, uh, NCIS. There were a ton of shows that had some kind of connection to St. Elsewhere, and he joked that that must mean that those shows occurred in this little boy's imagination, too, Now I saw one TV critic that joked that 90% of all TV shows since the 80s has had some connection to this little boy's imagination. There's a whole Wikipedia page, yeah, you can read about it, there's a whole theory, but you could trace it all back, a maybe questionable decision by some writers that reverberated out, and if you wanna be consistent with your show, They all just took place in the mind of this little boy. Now that's a silly example of the real thing. Decisions that we make, decisions that happen, can reverberate and echo. Depending on who a person is and what they do, decisions can spread the impacts of We can think of numerous examples, not seen elsewhere, but think of family dynamics. Think like of family dynamics. So a grandfather's decision to abuse his children can lead to a child who develops what unhealthy coping mechanisms that impact and become places of trauma for their kids, and it's generations and generations of cycles of abuse. Lots of times decisions made generations ago still have impacts today. And now that it just doesn't happen on the family level, of course it happens there, it happens in even bigger ways. It happens in society. Things that happened years ago reverberate out. They echo. Now, I know we like to think of ourselves as individuals, that we are not impacted or influenced by things outside of ourselves and we make our own decisions. But a lot of times that's simply not true. So much of what our life is and the things that we experience happen to us. We don't have any control over them. They come to us. Now, that doesn't mean that we as individuals aren't important. Not at all but it just means that we're interconnected in ways we maybe don't always appreciate. We aren't just individuals making decisions, Where people joined together in relationships and institutions, become systems that reverberate and cycle through. Now I mention all of that because when we come to the book of Exodus, we see that exact thing with the kingdom of Egypt. If you start back in Exodus one, which we were there back in January, I believe, in Exodus one, it opens on a scene A new pharaoh has come to the throne. And this new pharaoh wants to shore up his power. And he looks around and he realizes the Israelites, these people that have lived in Egypt for hundreds of years at this point, that they're growing. But they haven't been assimilated. They're growing, but they still, they don't worship the Egyptian gods. They have their own culture, their own language, their own way of life. And he gets worried. He thinks, well, if they keep growing, they're going to get too big. And they're going to you know, leave the country. We can't let that happen. They're our work force. <laughs> so he enslaves them. And when that doesn't work, when he's still scared, he institutes a terrible policy that basically commands all Egyptians, if they see a Hebrew boy, toss him into the nile. Kill him. Our passage today happens about 80 years after that. Two full generations basically. But that decision by that Pharaoh has continued to have huge impact. It has reverberated out. That one decision by Pharaoh so long ago has impacted everything that came out of it. It had built an entire society on that. A decision has led to other decisions. And what we see in our passage is God confronts that injustice to deal with it. And that's what God does in the plagues, all of them. This is the tenth one. There's nine that come before this, and we talked about the other nine a few weeks ago. Um, And that leads me to my first section, if, if you want to think of it in that way. The way God confronts injustice is with judgment and mercy. Judgment and mercy. So what we see here is God confronts the injustice there in Egypt with judgment. He talks about it. I'm going to judge Pharaoh and the false gods of Egypt. Now you may remember I talked a few weeks ago about the plagues and how each of the plagues were either direct or indirect, waging of war on the false gods of Egypt. And so the first plague, the blood turning of the Nile, or the water of the Nile turning to blood, it was this like symbolic killing of Happy, the god of the Nile. It was God demonstrating that He is more powerful than this false god. Or the ninth plague, the one immediately previous to this, the turning of uh, uh, of all of Egypt to darkness. That was against Ra, the sun god, which was the primary god in Egypt. It was a demonstration Yahweh, the true god, is more powerful than this false god that the Egyptian society is built on. So we see that, this judgment of false gods and the society that had been built up under those false gods, that had justified the oppression there. But we also see God dealing with great mercy Because the other thing that's going on in the plagues isn't just God flexing his muscles. This isn't a CrossFit gym and God's trying to impress everybody. He's demonstrating the false gods, but he's also showing himself as the true God with an invitation for people to come to him. The plagues are an open door. God is exposing these false gods and the society that's built on them so people will see it and turn from it to come and find him. Judgment and mercy. Judgment against the false gods and that society built on its back. That's Egypt. Mercy for the Israelites and the people who would turn to him His community built on his promises. And so we see that here in this tenth plague too. The tenth plague is God facing not just the false gods of Egypt. He had done that in the other nine. It's him confronting the very real Pharaoh. The very real Pharaoh. Because in Egypt, Pharaoh wasn't just a political figure. He was a religious figure, too. He was seen as divine. He was seen as the son of the gods. And when the Pharaoh would die, they would throw big celebrations because they thought his death meant he had ascended up into the pantheon of gods. He had now become immortal. He had become a god. So Pharaoh was seen not just as a political figure, but a religious one as well. And so God's judgment comes here. In this tenth plague upon Pharaoh and his power, because his judgment on Egypt would have been incomplete if it didn't. Now, I think we learned something about God's judgment here. Not just in Egypt, but God's judgment in general. And i want to list a couple, uh, I guess, principles of God's judgment that I think we see here. And the first one is this. God's judgment is never arbitrary. It's never arbitrary. I I think when I grew up thinking about the concept of God judging, God's judgment, it always felt like he was like a precocious... (laughs) Five-year-old <laughs> with a magnifying glass on an ant heel. Like he's gonna come and get me, and it's just kind of he. It's arbitrary. I'm just happen to be the ant, and the sun's in the sky, and he's gonna get me. But God's judgment is never arbitrary. God's judgment is this: it's justice in action. It's Him making wrongs right. In Egypt, Pharaoh refused to hear. It says throughout the plagues that God had, that uh, Pharaoh had hardened his own heart. It says it over and over again, Pharaoh hardened his heart against Moses, against the people of Israel, against God, and then it begins to say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But it's important to note that that's not arbitrary. God's not making Pharaoh do something that he didn't want to do. Pharaoh is continuously stru- uh, stubborn in the face of God. He refuses to hear, and so God emboldens him in a sense, so that the demonstration of God's strength against him will be even more drastic. It's almost like a boxing match where it's deep into the match. And they get one guy's winning, but it, you know he holds the other his opponent up for a few more hits to make sure it is seen that he's winning. God's not a boxer, don't But the point here is God's judgment's not arbitrary. He didn't look around and say, I'm going to go pick on Pharaoh. No, this was the leader of an oppressive kingdom that had murdered had killed, that it subjugated. The second one is this. God's judgment is equitable. It's equitable. Now judgment here, in this passage, feels very harsh when you read it. I hope you felt that when we were reading through it, because it does. It feels very harsh. The, the death of every firstborn male of every family. And I think uh, my my seeing this in movies that have been made based on this over the years has, has colored my understanding, because understanding, I hear firstborn male, and I'm thinking, little kids, little boys running around. But that's not the point here. Remember, God's judgment is justice in action. When we see firstborn son in this passage, we should not imagine just little boys innocently running around. Pharaoh's son, for instance, he would have been a middle-aged man at this point. A middle-aged man who had taken part in the injustice of Egypt, acted the point of this judgment was that it touched everyone who benefited and continued the oppression of Egypt. Not that there were innocent folks kind of there. It was a demonstration of God's power and His judgment here. It touched all who benefited from the oppression of Egypt's society. Not just the men with lips in their hands. Not just the officials in Pharaoh's court. Now, of course, their individual guilt may be greater. But think about this. This all comes... At the end of the other nine plagues. These incredible instances of God acting And things that just cannot be explained away by like, well, I guess, you know, it got really dark one afternoon. You know, all these incredible plagues happen. The, the, the pestilence. The destruction of crops. And as we read through the plagues, they happen in the places of Egypt where the Israelites don't live. They don't happen where the Israelites. Even the, even the plague of darkness, it happened in a locality, but it says in, uh, in chapter 10 that all the places the Israelites lived, lived have light. So these would have been great demonstrations here, all of it happening in front of people's eyes, all of it being explained by Moses. Moses explains what's going on all throughout the account, and I'm making this point because of this. By the time you get to this 10th plague, the lines have been clearly drawn. The lines have been very clearly drawn. It's almost like uh, when you're on the news, when you're watching the news, we're coming into hurricane season. You know, category 4 hurricane's going to hit the coast, and they do what? Evacuation. Hey, evacuate. Category 4 hurricane coming. Evacuate. And people are like, no, I'm just going to get some stuff from Lowe's and put it on the windows. It's like, no, evacuate. That's what's happened here with the nine plagues. It's a warning. God's judgment is going to justly and equitably fall on Egypt. Flee, (laughs) evacuate Egypt in your hearts. I'll get uh, to the rest of that in just a second. So don't read this and think God is visiting judgment on uh, innocent folks. That's not what's happening. And the third thing about God's judgment judgment is justice cannot be bought off. Notice that uh, things tend to happen in our society and they hit but who wears it the most? It's usually the poor. You know, bad things happen. And it's usually the The, fle- the, the rich can flee. Um, you know, last uh, winter when the ice storm hit Texas. I'm not picking on Ted Cruz. I don't, this isn't a political thing. But you may remember this. Ted Cruz left for Cancun. Uh, the whole state's about to lose power. And he's like, peace out, I'm gone. And he heads to... Cancun. After then, tweeting, you know, I'm in it with the people of Texas or for whatever. Um, But here, that's not what can happen. Notice it makes the point that this comes from to the top to the bottom. Everyone that has uh, participated in and benefited from this oppression is impacted. The, The rich cannot flee it. God's justice is coming justice is coming. So that's his judgment. His justice is never arbitrary. It's always just. It can't be bought off. And his judgment is true. Now that might be a hard thing to believe. Something we have to state on faith and not because we understand the ins and outs of it. But the harshness of his judgment, the way it feels, the depth of it here points to the depth of the darkness in Egypt. And God's judgment is just and we tremble to see it. Now I spoke a lot about judgment. Where's the mercy? Where's the mercy? The truth is, God's judgment is never pronounced without mercy. And in the midst of this terrible judgment, is there mercy? Yes, we see it here in the open door of Israel. The open door of Israel. God has broken down, think of it, God breaks down every class distinction in His judgment coming upon. Upon Egypt. I just mentioned that. It comes to the rich to the poor. There's no class distinctions. God's judgment is true, it comes against everybody. He breaks down every division except for one. Look at verse 7. You will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Egypt and Israel. Breaking down all distinctions except for that. Of course, that makes us ask what is Egypt? What is Israel? Well, think of it this way: Egypt. Is not just about having a membership card like, uh, like we're citizens of the United States. It's not exactly that. Egypt is all that stands against life, against justice, justice and equity, all that stands against right. We see that over and over again in the opening chapters. It's a society that followed after false gods, a society that was built, um, that built its wealth on the back of people. And so, what was Israel? Now, it's important to note that when we read Israel here, it talks a lot about family. It talks about God being faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the idea of Israel was never just one of bloodlines. The idea of what Israel was, it was never just an ethnic division. And so when we read God saying, I'm going to make a distinction between Egypt and Israel, He's not just saying, these people that have the right Ancestry.com printout, that's who I'm going to be nice to, everybody else... That's not the idea. It's not an ethnic one. Israel wasn't uh, a community of bloodlines. That wasn't the primary focus. It was a community of faith. The definition from the very beginning of what Israel was, was that it looked to the true God and placed their faith in Him. The Apostle Paul makes this point in the book of Galatians. If you've ever read through it, it talks about the true sons and daughters of Abraham. It's people that had faith like Abraham. Paul makes that point. It's not just about finding the right genealogy and being able to say, well, my blood is pure because my mom and my dad were this. It's not about having the right last name. That's not what it is. Israel has always been a community of faith built on the promises of God.
1: Now, we know that from this
0: passage because of this, what God tells them in this 10th play to do. He doesn't say, um, you know, uh, draw your family tree and post it on the front of He doesn't say that. The people of Israel will never bow to bloodlines. What does he say? Well, I'll get there in just a second. It's always a matter of faith in God. Trust and dependence upon Him. That's the definition of Israel. Community founded on God's promises. Those promises passed down as an inheritance. But with a doorway always open. Always open to outsiders. Now what faith looks like in our passage today is a little weird. This is the way that God instructs him to turn away from Egypt and turn to him. To take a lamb and to make a dinner. <laughs> to take a lamb, uh, to kill a lamb for a meal, which killing meat for dinner would have been an incredibly common thing. It would be like, you know, farms going out and wringing the neck of a chicken and taking a in and make a chicken. That's kind of day in, day out kind of stuff. For them. But then he tells them to do something very strange to take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts. That's not common. (laughs) It wasn't common then. But I want to point out God does not ask them again to put their family tree on the door because being a part of who Israel is is never that. He doesn't say my mercy here is just for people who have lived really good religious lives or people who have the right last name. He gives them this, a very specific action, a very specific action, the meal of the Passover. Now we're we'll going to talk about a little bit more about the Passover next week and there's a lot we could say about it. But it's one of the defining features, not just of the people who are about to flee Egypt here. But for Israel all throughout the centuries, even today, one of the most important things on the calendar for a Jewish family is celebrating Passover. Um, This meal became one of the standing things throughout the Old Testament. And it became a celebration that was done every year, commemorating what happened here. Uh, An opportunity in a sense to participate in, to join yourself to this God who acts in judgment and lavish mercy. So God gives them instructions. And the pa- Passover had two primary uh, ideas connected to it. And the first one was sacrifice. Now the ideas of sacrifice carry with it. Ideas of atonement. That making something right. And in, in the entire ceremonial worship system. Of the people of Israel. That gets expounded on later in Exodus. In the book of Leviticus. It was built on this idea. Sacrifices could be brought as replacements. As a way for sins to be punished. By them being removed from you. It was this uh, symbolic action. that The sins could be transferred, in a sense, to this animal, and, and, and you could give the animal to God and it would face the judgment, and you could understand that sins are removed and forgiven for me, but it doesn't cost nothing. It's gotta go somewhere. It costs something. But that's not the only thing that the Passover communicates. It's not just a sacrifice. It's not even the primary thing primary thing that the Passover is is a meal. It's communion. Literally communion. That's what we're going to talk about next week. But it's literally a meal. And if you think of Passover as just sacrifice, or if you even think of the tabernacle and later the temple in the Old Testament as just sacrifices, then we're missing a key thing. What's going on in so many of the sacrifices is that you bring your sacrifice to God. And it's rightfully His. I mean, you're bringing something that He made anyway. (laughs) You're bringing something that He's given to you. You give it to Him. And what does He do? He takes it. And in turn, it becomes a meal. A big aspect of the Old Testament worship was eating symbolically, eating with God. Eating with Him. Being fed by Him. You'd bring the lamb but he, in a sense, had provided what he asked for. And that sacrifice that God asked for is turned around and given his nourishment and food for them. Now, it's crass to think of it that way, but think of it like you call Domino's. You order your food, they bring it to you, and then you invite the delivery driver in to eat with you at your expense. That's kind of like... Man, my, my analogies are terrible. God's not a Domino's delivery driver. In fact, in that one, God's the guy ordering the pizza. Never mind... Forget that one. Um, But this was supposed to be a meal. Not just a sacrifice. Not a throw blood on the doorpost and cower inside and say, Oh, I I hope that's enough blood. I hope God sees it. No, the idea was this meal of peace in the midst of chaos. Egypt was already chaos. In the midst of God visiting His judgment, being able to sit in this house of mercy, defined by God's promises, and eat with joy... And confidence, that God could visit justice upon this world in the reality of sin in Egypt, in a society, in the idea of, of visiting judgment on sin on individuals there, that there could be a way to commune with God, to rest with Him. And this communal meal, this meal creates a community. Notice the amount of attention that's brought to this to make sure that no one eats alone. The amount of attention given to making sure people don't eat alone, making sure people are turning their eye outward to welcome others in. This is why I call it the open door of Israel because right here in the Passover, they have to look around their neighbors and count heads. Okay, how much is everybody going to eat? Do we have enough for everybody? Do we need to join together to make sure we're all, we all have enough? This wouldn't have just been limited to people who were also Israelites. Again, like I said, this tenth plague comes at the end of the other nine. And so the Egyptians would have seen this. And the Egyptians that would have seen the exposure of their false gods and have begun to turn to identify with Yahweh, the true God, the God of these slaves, the opened doors for them to participate in this Passover too. In fact, the passage that we'll look at next week that talks about the ongoing celebration of Passover, there's an assumption That non-Israelites will be there always. It's built into the meal. An expectation. There's an open door, an open seat at the table always. I think the Passover is such a great picture of the open door of Israel, God's people. What they were designed to be. Israel was a people defined by God's grace, trusting in His promises to provide, listening to His voice. Not primarily defined by family connections or religious perfection or how much money they had. They were a people that were supposed to be in every part defined by the God who does justice, who does not let oppression stand, but the God who also invites us to find mercy in Him and to find our way home. Here in Exodus 11 and 12, this open door is to all who will turn away from the way of Egypt. Come into these houses of peace. Some closing thoughts here. Judgment, mercy, and, and us. It's starting to turn toward us a little bit more. I think we can appreciate the mercy of God here so much by contrasting it with His judgment. Remember I talked about judgment earlier. It's always equitable. It's never arbitrary. But here in Egypt, guilt belongs in a sense to all of Egypt. All of us. But the invitation to come to God comes to who? To the lowly. To the slave. To the humble. And through the humble, to the proud. That's what happens. The Israelites weren't people that had a lot to, to be uh, impressed with. But the invitation to mercy comes from them to those who maybe did The invitation was there. And that open door is one that continues to us. We receive God's welcome through the humble and lowly Jesus. It's the only way we can come to this table. It's the only way we can find mercy. It's through the humble and lowly Jesus. Who does not look like the kings of this world. Who doesn't look impressive. Who was literally crucified. Who calls us from the ways of this world that only wear us out to find ourselves in Him. Jesus who offers to take our sin from us. That's why you notice in our call of worship we call Jesus our Passover lamb. That's New Testament language. The first thing John the Baptist says when he sees Jesus is, Behold, right there, look, the lamb of God. He's here. That's all New Testament language. Because when the New Testament writers were trying to think about, Who, who is Jesus? What has he done? They looked here him and they said, this, this is what he's done. He's made a way for us to receive mercy, even though, truthfully, we are Egypt. We are. We are Egypt. But by His blood, He's brought us to mercy. He is our Passover and He takes our sins from us, the one who became sin for us, as we read from 2 Corinthians 5, so that we might receive His righteousness as a gift. When we talk about the judgment of God is equitable. The concept there, you've heard it before, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. The idea there is judgment should meet a crime. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It shouldn't be over. And, that, and if you look through the laws of the Old Testament, we'll talk about them later in Exodus, that's the concept that permeates. If you do this to a person, what you do to recompense needs to match up to it. If you accidentally kill their ox, you need to pay them the right amount for it. It's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's the principle of justice that permeates the Old Testament system for everybody except for God. Think about it. God has sinned against and He's the eternal God. And what does he get? Some measly animals. God has sinned against. And when he tells people to bring him... Some measly animals. And if you think about it, that would just, there would be a debt there, right? It would never pay off. It would never match up. It would always just bring sin against God. Oh, here's a lamb. What does that do? That's not my friend. It builds up. It builds up until Jesus. Until Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh offering Himself. So that our sin, committed as human beings, is paid for not by some sacrifices, but by a human. And so our confidence today, and think about it, it always felt a little tenuous in the Old Testament. You had to count on the priest being a pretty good guy, and you had to count on him doing the sacrifices exactly right. You're sitting outside the temple and you're like, I don't know. <laughs> he might be a jerk. I don't know him. Oh, he might, you know, it might be the wrong animal maybe it would feel a little bit tenuous, but in Jesus we have a perfect priest, and our hope rests in Him not in some measly animal but God's justice is satisfied in Jesus offering Himself for us in justice uh, I talked earlier God's justice can't be bought off but our redemption friends is paid for by Jesus we sang it earlier sins are many but His mercy is more any debt Any uh, judgment that is against our sins, and this is the good news of the gospel, any sin that you've committed, no matter how many, whatever wrath or justice that belongs to that sin that should be visited on it, has been visited on Jesus. There is zero wrath that remains for you. Zero wrath that remains for me. I don't have to question that I'm going to get to judgment day and stand before God and will say, you really forgot to confess these six things. Or that seventh sin was just a little bit too big. No. When I stand before God, I can flee to Him. Because I don't have any question that there needs to be justice poured out on me. Because I am counted in Jesus. And the justice of God against sin is graciously taken on. in a sense, there's one theologian that says God satisfied Himself by sacrificing Himself. God satisfied His justice by sacrificing Himself. He took care of all that stood in the way between us and Him. I could keep going, but in Jesus we get a better light of God's mercy. It's a little bit harder to see, I think, in our passage. But that's true in the Old Testament as a whole. The light gradually begins to shine. We get a clearer and clearer picture, to the point that 2 Corinthians 5, which I did quote this morning, speaks about the shining light of Jesus. The majesty and glory of God shining in the face of Jesus in a way that was never clear enough through Moses or throughout the Old Testament. We get a better light of God's mercy than we even see here in the Passover. Because even though the Passover may be a great mercy, it's still a bit obscured. But this meal pointed to Jesus. Jesus, our Passover land, who who gives His body and His blood so that our confidence can rest. Never in ourselves, but always in Him. So that's the point this morning. That's the point this morning. Not that we're going to start celebrating the Passover every year as a church. And we're going to have bitter herbs and all of those things. And we'll talk a little bit more because we actually celebrate the Passover every week now. Um, But we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. And I've rambled on, but hear this. This is your confidence. Jesus, always Jesus, only Jesus. Jesus, always Jesus. And only Jesus, adding anything to him detracts from his glory. So as you walk out your door tomorrow morning, you wake up and you're facing your day. Your confidence is not in your ability, your strength, or your impressiveness. You might be incredibly talented. You might not be. You might be really bad at your job. <laughs> you might have a lot of money and made a lot of good decisions. With, with what's been put in your hand. And you might have really blown it. You might be in incredible amounts of debt. Your confidence, period, as you walk into your week tomorrow is Jesus, always Jesus, only Jesus. Walk in that. Walk in that. Know that the God of the universe loves you. Don't wear the stuff you try to put on your own shoulders, don't wear the stuff other people try to put on your own shoulders. Turn away from all that. That's like the world of Egypt that God has no interest in. But know that your home is with Him. That you have a room in this house of mercy that will never be taken away and your confidence is in His love for you.